When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you want to come on and howdy, folks, welcome into Millennial Money, everybody. Uh, Andre Graham in the house, and me, Jeremy, and we got a lot to talk about oil, stocks, crypto, housing, so much more. Andre Graham, take it away. How are you, gentlemen, doing tonight? Good. How are you guys? How are you? Muy bueno, doing very well, except for this market because I'm uh, it's it's a tough market out there. I don't know if you guys see it, I'm sure you're feeling it. It's a lot of pain out there, and we are in extreme fear. Extreme fear, gentlemen. Where's the bye, 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 bye button? With the bye, 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 bye. I forget it. Gosh, Jim Cramer. We need one on our own. Is that what you guys think when you see a chart like this or something like this where it says extreme fear? Do you does it does in your mind just tell you now's the time to buy or how do you guys? I was somebody. You know, it's funny. I never timed the market, but I always mentally try to. Like I'm like, if I could put in a ton of money right now. I feel like now would be a great time. So I've always played a mental game with myself, but I never actually act on it. So yeah, I feel like now is a great time to buy. But so far, yeah, if you look if you look back at the S and P objectively throughout the last year, we're basically at the same level we were a year ago. So it's like being able to buy last year's prices today. Yeah, when you look at it like that. I mean, it does make you seem like you, know, you might be getting a deal. Well, at least compared to where we were, I don't know, six months ago, five months ago. Yeah, it's incredible. Oh, Alex, if you want to take us to, to the next slide, you can you can see uh, it, basically how this is how this has transpired over the past three years. Um, it, it's it's extraordinary. I don't know if you want to take us to the next one, Alex, but essentially what you're going to see is we're in the most fearful market we have been uh, since March of 2020, which is uh, pretty extraordinary. And um, I mean, think about like what do you guys think was a more fearful market to you, March of 2020 or right now? March. Well, March. By far, by far. Yeah, but we have fearful versus valuations. Um, I mean, yes, you could say that even back then the values were high, but we'd come from such a peak. Uh, and now that I think it's sinking in that, wait, wait a second, maybe inflation is going to be higher. The, the ban on oil is maybe driving prices higher. Is that going to mean interest rates are going to rise faster? What's that going to do to the value of our, our, our assets? That means things are going to decline. So that's where I think the fear is based now. Versus the uncertainty of you know what what might happen during uh, you know during a shutdown. Yeah, Jeremy, how do they remind us, please? How do they measure this kind of fear? Um, how is it like? How are they getting that index? Yeah, they're they're taking a bunch of different stuff into account. There's like seven core metrics uh, that they use for this. Essentially, uh, one is the VIX, which is like the volatility index, and uh, yeah. 
you know, the VIX has spiked to, for people's for reference, uh, 37 as of the other day, uh, or actually today it hit 37, which is uh, extremely high. And whenever the VIX spikes that high, usually people are doing some stuff, they're selling stocks. Um, it looks at the junk bond market. It looks at the bond market. And it, it uh, looks at some other various factors and it takes all it into account into okay. like this algorithm, which pumps you out a number of, of what you're in. No, the VIX, I remember anything above 30 or 32, wasn't it? That was considered extreme fear. Um, and then anything, where, where's the average at usually in the market? Is it like 20 to 25, somewhere around like that? Yeah, Alex, if you want to take us a, a couple slides ahead here, I'll, I'll show you uh, essentially. Yeah, that was a fear and greed, by the way, over the past three years. So that's interesting. Yeah. So as you see there, March of 2020 is the only time in the past three years we've had this fearful of a market. Um mm -hmm which is crazy. So yeah, if you want to take us the next one there, Alex, uh, that one's going to show the VIX and, um, no. Oh no, wait, this one shows PayPal. I didn't, I'm sorry, Alex, I didn't give you the VIX. I apologize. I messed up anyways. Uh, so the VIX is, is at a 37 here today. Yes. Andre, if you're over 30, you're really, really high. If you're over 35, you're insanely high. And when it comes to the VIX, there's, there's very few times it goes that high. And I was looking at like the past 20 years and there's only uh, maybe 20 or 30 times in the past 20 years where the VIX has spiked over 35. And usually how it works is every single time, um, shortly after, within a couple months of that, you go on another massive bull run most of the time. Yeah. Now, what's, what's interesting, when you look at the VIX, the last time it surpassed 35. Now, it did get very close uh, January 29th at 33. But the time before that was October 30th, spiked to 38. I'm just yep. surprised that the greed of 2020 or 2019, I'm not sure where that falls, but the peak, almost 100. Yeah, a lot of people were pretty bullish uh, going into 2020. And uh, it was, you know, 2020 was setting up like it was going to be a strong year for earnings and a strong year for companies, obviously. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we were hit with a once in a 100 year pandemic. And uh, that greed slowly went into mass fear. And, um, you know, there was a 35% fall in 22 trading days in SP 500, which is, uh, you know, the fastest fall in the history of SP 500 for context. Um, and then you look, you look back at, at, uh, obviously going into 2021, man, we are in a greedy market and then boy, has that fallen rapidly? My gosh. I yeah. mean, if you, if you were to overlay, it would have been fun to overlay like the NASDAQ, um, you would probably see that the NASDAQ kind of follows a similar line or the Russell 2000 or something like that. Um, so yeah, we're, in, we're in a fearful market and that's for dang yep. sure. Um, you know, and, and the question is, you know, do you guys see the fear ending anytime soon? Or do you feel like we're going to have this fear for weeks or months to go in the future? What do you guys foresee there? I think yeah, it's I always good about this. You, you go, go first down, right? Okay. So I was thinking about this too. Um, cause, okay. So the way I look at it is this highly depends on the conflict, right? In Europe, it seems like everything is hinged on that. And then I was thinking, wars kind of don't end, right? Like, I don't remember the last time that someone was like, okay, this is over now. Uh, we've declared victory. They just kind of drag on for years and years, and then they fizzle out. And that's mm -hmm. my fear is, like, the, the last thing I would want is for, you know, the Ukraine-Russia thing to play out over years. I'm hoping it, it, it ends soon, but, like, what does that mean, end, like, one side gives up to the other. I guess Russia pulls out. Um, I, I don't know. I don't see like a definitive end to that. So I'm, I don't know. Maybe that's the pessimist in me. But well, what do you think, Graham? Well, it could be this is somewhat similar. Well, you could look at COVID too, the same sort of thing. It's not technically it's not over, right. but the effects have somewhat diminished. 
And when I think when you look at it that way, it's almost like things will somewhat fade, but then something else will take its place. And at right. least for the last two years, it's always been something else on the horizon. And that then takes the focus. And in this case, I think, you know, after after Russia, Ukraine, it's, I think it's going to be interest rates. And then if it's not interest rates on the on March 16th, it's going to be interest rates on the next tightening cycle and the next one. And then potentially there might be something else in between. So I think there's always going to be something else that's out there that that will drag attention away. There's, there's yeah, always going to be a reason to be fearful. Exactly. The, the market kind of goes in these 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 patterns where one minute it's fearful over this. Like at first it was inflation, right? It's like inflation's going crazy. The market got fearful over that. Then it was, oh, the Fed's going to raise rates like eight, nine times. And then the market got scared over that. Then it was Russia, Ukraine took the, took the situation. And now recently it's oil prices going sky high. So it seems like the market's going to look at whatever it really wants to look at. And it's only going to care about that for so long. Even if you think about Rona, I mean, it really cared about it for about two or three months. And then we just kind of moved past it. Right. And the market just started moving up and, you know, off to the moon we, we were. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to kind of see how long the, these things last and how long the market actually cares about it. So, you know, well, well speaking of the, the oil stuff, um, did you guys see the the chart that showed kind of like the oil, how oil's kind of not necessarily predicted recessions, but sort of preceded them I right did. around the time they hit the all time high? I don't know if Alex, Alex, if you want to pull up that information. Yeah, that I thought was a very interesting chart. It was going around on Twitter. That's where I yeah. saw it. Yeah. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, because, I mean, obviously, 08, uh, oil went really high. But, I mean, can we really blame, I think it was March of, of 08, actually, oil hit, like, record, like, 140, 150 or something. But can yeah. we really blame that recession on on gas prices going up and, and oil going up? You know, there's so many various things that were at play in that with the housing crisis and in, in companies yeah. and the financial yeah. crisis. Yeah. I don't know if it, I don't think it was oil that I, I think oil was more of like a symptom. Like when you have a fever, most likely you have this mm. and it's somewhat similar. It's like when you have high oil, oil prices or energy prices, then most likely you will have this as a result. Uh, no, that's not it. But that, that does show how insane oil yeah. has gone recently, which I think is interesting just for people that don't really keep up with this. I mean, it's it's a pretty darn epic run, you know, from 60-ish a barrel to 100, 100 plus. Uh, Brent's been been trading over 130 recently, which is more important for the European market. And um, and the, the worst part is we don't know when, you know, how long that's going to go for. Do you guys remember when oil went negative? When yeah, that, was it, I remember that. Like, we did a video about that. Thirty dollars yeah. a barrel or something like that. Just, <laughs> yeah. just to haul it away. They had too much the of it. Infinite money glitch with oil. That was fun, guys. What we should have done, we should have just bought warehouses in Vegas and then just <laughs> taken all that oil, got the money, stored it, and then now we could be selling it and be so rich. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I think I think the issue was that uh, in order to store the oil, I think it was it was a price like two hundred thousand dollars a day, right? For the, for the tanker to store it. Yeah, so you would need to buy a lot of oil to make that worth it. That's right, the oil futures market in 2020. I remember that. But it was also, I believe, it was just the the Texas crude that was trading negative because they had excess that they couldn't get rid of. Here we go. Here's the chart. So every time oil has exceeded uh, $104, there's been a recession. But funny enough, well, not funny enough, um, you could see during the 2020 quick recession – 
uh, how, how it dipped. It never really exceeded that. So the recession wasn't so much because of oil, uh, but that was such a minor such a minor this is, this is kind of terrifying though look, look at this graph literally every single peak that exceeds that 50 50 mark or 104 dollars every single time it's been in that zone of a recession except yeah. for 2000 was it is it 2000 around there they don't quite line up perfectly but every other time right it well, lines up. you know what's interesting about this though guys think about this for a moment oil at let's say 104 or whatever um, back in the seventies, eighties, even if we go back to 2008 was a lot more money than it is today. Right. Imagine right. you're, you're paying, you know, $4 a gallon in 2008. That that's not worth nearly as much nowadays if you're paying $4 a gallon. Right. So I think that's just yeah. another way to think about it. Um, it seems like in order to get the same, uh, effect, you would almost need to see maybe oil at 150 or something like that. But if that was the case, Jeremy, then why are we seeing the same correlation from say 1990 2010 all the way back to, to you know 1970 you would have That's figured true. that that peak would be lower and lower you know decades ago by that logic but it's it's still somehow magically that 104 dollar mark it doesn't make sense that's a good point. Yeah, that's that's wild. And uh, man, it, it reminds me of the yield curve. When the yield curve inverts, they say, oh, a recession's going to come within, I think it's like six to 18 months or something like that. So right. uh, we'll see. I always, I always think that these are yeah. true until they're not. And, uh, you know, like it'll happen, but then it won't happen. And then they could rationalize that by saying, well, when you account for inflation, then actually now it's $200 a barrel. So when it, then it'll, so I feel like there's always going to be something because yeah, I mean, oil at a hundred dollars a barrel, let's just say uh, in 1990 is significantly more expensive than it is at a hundred dollars today. Right. So uh, I, I know it seems like they're all adding up and you know, very well, maybe they are, but uh, uh, I, I'm always skeptical when a chart chart always has something always happens every single time after this. I'm always skeptical that it's like, Oh, well there's the one time it doesn't. Yeah. There's, there's always a caveat, but Jer Jeremy with, with uh, what you were saying with the inverted yield curve, I'm seeing this in the media a lot where the yield curve is flattening. Right. And then if it ever, you know, goes negative um, then like you said, six to 18 months, there's a recession. But what yep. they don't say is that it's, it's not one of those things where if it dips, like it has to last there for a while. It, can, it can't just like dip below that point and come back up. And then it's like, oh, we're going to get a recession. It has to it has to sustain for quite a while. So, for example, the way this relates here is, you know, the conflict with Europe. If we get the inverted yield curve to happen and it comes back up as a result of the conflict, it, it doesn't mean we're guaranteed the recession in six to 18 months because it, it has to have a sustaining effect for a while for, for the recession to actually happen. Based on my understanding, I could be wrong, but th that's the way I, I kind of understand it. That, that makes sense. And, and then a uh, question. Do you guys know the last time the, the yield curve inverted? Was it 2019? Yeah, I believe it was late 2019. And it just so happened to have the uh, the shutdown right afterwards. Yeah. Exactly. We don't Dude. know if that would have led to something had it not yeah. been for that. Yeah. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I know. No, I, wanted, yeah. I wanted to make a video that was called The Recession That Was Supposed to Happen. Or the recession that never happened and and talk about exactly that how we had the inverted yield curve and it almost seems like it, it got postponed so so imagine if the covid if the shutdown only postponed what was supposed to happen and and now we're seeing fears of it again and it's just like ah uh, i don't know 
it's a possibility, but I mean, I, I remember going into 2020, it was a, it was going to be a, a pretty bullish year for stocks. There were a lot of reasons that companies' earnings were going to increase quite a bit. Revenue was going to be up. Um, I, I, you know, we can never replay it, but I think 2020 was going to be a pretty good year. It was going to shape up to be a really good year, and that's why stocks, uh, you know, people were feeling pretty darn good uh, about the market going into 2020, including myself. Uh, but then you get that once in a hundred year event that comes out of nowhere and it, it messes us up, man. It messes yeah, us yeah. up. Now, now everybody has to pay a million dollars more for a house. It's out of control. So, all right, Alex, you want to take us over to the, to the next slide here? I want to get these gentlemen's opinions on this uh, next stock. And if you guys are, okay. are buying dip in this one. Uh -oh. <laughs> and it's one we, we all know uh, very well, this company, you know. They own... Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine? I'll try to sell you guys on that every day. Oh, wow. Yeah, so PayPal, 60% plus the stock has fallen in the past 14 months, 50% plus in the past four months. Um, you know, incredible fall for the stock. I mean, they own v PayPal, Venmo. Their business is tearing up. Cash flow machine, profit machine. Revenue is go going the right way. Uh, customers are going the right way. But the market just, you know, it's not like the PayPal's only stock down in this market. I mean, there's so many stocks down 50, 60, 70% that I don't even know where yeah. to start. But you know, this is one of those that I feel like even if you're kind of a beginner in the market, right, um, this is kind of an easy one, I feel like, to, to get your head around and be like, hey, you know, if I'm going to pick an individual stock, it may, may be a PayPal, something like that. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, Apple or Facebook or Microsoft or one of those type of companies. So, um, you know, is this one that interests you guys at all or not really? When I see yeah. charts like this, I'm always thinking like, how come the analysts that make fun of Bitcoin don't show me charts like this when they're like, Bitcoin's so volatile. Look how much it loses. 60%, man, for a, for a stock like that. That's I, I don't recall the last time Bitcoin did a move like that. I mean, yeah. that's, that's pretty substantial. Yeah, uh, well, that, that, that's a great point. I mean, it's it's been a, a pretty fast fall. I mean, to be fair, though, Bitcoin did did hit about 69,000, not to say Bitcoin is, you know, yeah. worse or better, but Bitcoin did hit about 69,000, then it fell to what, 30, 31 or 33 or whatever. True, so true. true. Um, well, but yeah, it does I mean, happen faster. So do you think the reason that PayPal is falling partially is because uh, the sanctions in Russia, since uh, Russian customers can't use it there anymore. Uh, it, why is it such a risk on, like, why is it perceived like such a risk on asset that it's falling so it's, far? It seems like they initially got hit with a new IRS rule that wanted them to track business payments. So all of a sudden they had to track right? Yeah, well, yeah, it was anything over $600 that was marked as a business transaction. So then they had to ask you, is that, are you paying for goods and services? And if you check yes, then they issue a, a statement to the IRS. So I think a lot of people initially got freaked out over that. Um, so that, I think, was their kind of initial hit. Same with Venmo. I mean, they all got kind of hit with that at the same time. Then you combine that they're somewhat of a tech company. Well, they are a tech company that is also impacted by rising rates. I still like I still like them. But then I'm also, I, I also got to be vigilant not to, because I do own some individual stocks and PayPal is one of them. That I started buying, uh, I think it was like 110 or something like that. And then I've been slowly averaging in a little bit lower. But they're one of the stocks where I don't want to go in too heavy with them because then I I made a horrible mistake with C3AI thinking, oh, I'm just going to buy the dip, buy the dip, and it just keeps dipping. Um, so, you know, I just make sure with any individual stock, it doesn't account for more than like a few percent of the overall portfolio. And once it hits a few percent, I just cut myself off. And then anytime I get an urge to buy more, I'm like, well, buy more S&P. So, mm. so I, I've been buying a little bit of PayPal, but 
arguably not not much. I, I do like them though. I try to buy companies that I do use on a daily basis, and PayPal is one of them. To be honest, I don't know. Do you, do you guys like? Okay, so Graham uses it. I don't hardly use PayPal. Like, what I'm about? Not, I don't really use it at all. You use Venmo. I use Venmo a lot, I guess, but not really PayPal. Yeah, okay. not really. PayPal. Not, but that's owned. But that's owned by PayPal, so it's like you True, know. Do you but use it's it? a small portion well, of it, isn't it? It, it, it's growing fast. That's their faster growing business. And it kind of reminds me of, of Facebook, right? If you're thinking about buying Facebook stock, people are like, well, I don't use Facebook, so I'm not going to consider Facebook stock. And it's like, do you, you use, use Instagram? Instagram. Yeah. And like, uh, yeah, every I minute. I love Instagram. Instagram is the best. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, they own that, right? Uh, WhatsApp, Oculus. So, um, but yeah, with, with PayPal, it's definitely one of those stocks that I think it's a good beginner uh, stock in the market. Like if you're thinking about, you want to go down the rabbit hole of actually buying individual stocks, which isn't for everybody, but the folks that do, I think you've got to throw PayPal in there. You got to throw companies like Meta, Google, Apple, Amazon, those sorts of stocks. And uh, it's nice when you can get them at, I mean, this is at a multi-year low when you look at that stock chart, you know, it's, it's getting down to prices. It was back in 2018, 2019, which is just wow. crazy. So um, yeah, it's, it's one of many stocks that just has made an incredible move, but uh, yeah, Alex, if you want to take us to the next slide. I thought this was interesting, gentlemen. I would love to hear your, your opinion on this because I think, you know, obviously we live in the States and we always hear about income equality and housing prices going up. And I saw this and I was just like, this is interesting. It seems mm -hmm. like it, it's more than just the United States, South Korea to elect new leader to tackle soaring house prices and inequality. So, you know, do you, you know, isn't it incredible that this is like a worldwide phenomenon in like, why, why do you think there's such kind of wealth inequality? Um, you know, like, why is this going on? Is it is it because of um, innovation? Is it because you can do so much more with less employees in the past? Is it because the people that have money have more money and know how to invest it better? Like, like, what's your guys' perspective on this? First of all, I'm curious, how are they planning to tackle soaring housing prices and inequality? <laughs> I Jeremy. You yeah. just ask like a doctorate level question. You're like, guys, like <laughs> economics, <laughs> like solve it for me. What's going oh, on? Yeah. <laughs> like, I would solve it in this live stream here. <laughs> five minutes. Take five minutes to solve it. Like, bro, I don't know. <laughs> All right. I know somebody that can give me an, an answer to this. Kevin, answer. <laughs> First, we have to make a video like like trashing him and then get him to come on. <laughs> oh god i mean okay so if we're going to talk about housing prices i mean let's say we we had to tackle the housing prices of las vegas right i think the first place we would think is we got to build more i think first off right um let's open up more land let's get more builders building um as quickly as possible i think that's probably our first place we go to i think wealth inequality is a really tough subject and that's one i've spent some time thinking about and it's like sure you could tax people and you know the whole tax the rich movement and put taxes a 70 percent or whatever but that's a that's a tough thing because a lot of these corporations and companies and businesses are just getting much more profitable than they ever could be in the past because of technology right and you could run a business so much leaner than you had to in the past where you might have used to have to use 20 people for a business and now you can use like three and all that extra profit goes to you rather than to an extra 17 employees. So that that's a subject that I've always had trouble with. And, you know, I don't know if you guys uh, have much of an opinion there on, on, on either of those. I know it's a, I know it's a tough subject. But that's fair play. So yeah. it's it's your uh, chance to be president. Well, <laughs> gosh, it's it's such a complicated question. Um, 
before the before the real estate thing, I'm still thinking about the stocks and what I don't know if you guys remember what Warren Buffett said and uh, John Bogle about the stock market's prediction and how they don't think that the stock market's going to go up higher than four percent per year on average. And it was just because interest rates dropped to zero pretty much. And if you look at the correlation between interest rates and the stock market, they're heavily, heavily correlated. So because we can't drop rates lower than zero, we can't really stimulate the stock market anymore. And so we're kind of left, you know, to its, it's left to its own devices. So I don't know. We keep saying that we can't drop it below zero. Like the zero is this, this threshold that's impossible to, to, you know, surpass. But I don't know. When you see other countries going with negative interest rates, I wouldn't put it at the impossible. I wouldn't say that's never going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we, we briefly go negative or we start doing negative rates on people holding, you know, a million dollars in cash or whatever. Then all of a sudden you start charging those people. Uh, parts of Europe, I think they're still doing that. I, I think it's possible. I would not be surprised if something happens, we go negative. Well, all of a sudden, on a thirty-year mortgage, it's zero percent. Like it's just nothing. Yeah, I, I, have, I have a friend. Uh, he's a, a Danish friend of mine, and um, you know, he's obviously knows a ton of people in Denmark. And he says he's got a you know a cousin that has a mortgage on on a half million dollar house. It, you know, he bought it for half million, and somehow his payment is only like seven hundred bucks a month, U.S. Mm. And I'm like, how does that even add up? And it wasn't like he did some crazy down payment or something like that in the house. But somehow with the interest rates and all the different stuff they have in Denmark, that he pays like $700 a month for a half million dollar house that he just bought recently. And I'm just like, how is that even Wait, possible? Because, they're, you're saying because their interest rates are ridiculously low. Yes. And then there were some other factors. I'll, I'll have to ask him and, and bring that back. So, it's funny you mentioned that. Just last night, I was talking to my friend Alex. He lives in um, Germany. And he just told me that the interest rate on his apartment that he just recently bought, like about a year ago, was 1.77%. And that's kind of considered a high. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. nuts. How? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, you also look at it in conjunction with the inflation and with a whole bunch of other metrics as well. But And especially, imagine if they have deflation, then yeah, then you're getting lower rates. But I, th I think it's absolutely, it's anything is possible at this point. Can you imagine if we dropped interest rates on, on a 30-year mortgage to, to, let's say, like 1% or half a percent, the, what that would do to home values? Like, people would just, just I don't know, we would go to like seven, dollars $800,000 median home, home values. Yeah, but that's how you keep the bubble going, Andre. You got to think <laughs> a step ahead. How do you keep the money train going? You got to keep upping it. Andre, you got to think bigger here. That that's hey, the trouble. That's the point. We want seven hundred thousand dollar condos. <laughs> Says the guy with a ten million dollar real estate portfolio. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah, well, that's speaking of that, I I did take out. You know, I bought a house. I just revealed that on my recent video, and and so yeah, that my mortgage was was uh, for a seven year loan at two point six percent. For a one million dollar loan. See, you guys are the problem. You guys are the problem. Okay. See, you're I knew you were going to go there. You're buying up all the houses, so then regular folks can't afford houses because you guys are so rich that you don't know what to do with the money. Oh yeah, sure. They're buying the regular house. folks are buying Andre's multi million dollar house in a in a community of like ten multi million dollar house, a million dollar <laughs> house, a community where the average price is like five million. Yeah, you know, I was thinking that as I was like making my video and as I was filming it, I was like, 
I, I should just say I'm part of the problem because it's like it's not like it's easy to be like it's, it's the hedge funds. It's look at their money, but it's like it's it's also people like us who are buying these houses. And I guess the only justification or the way I'm rationalizing with myself is I, I'm not exactly buying like three hundred thousand dollar homes, like median like starter homes for for from families. You know, this is like a one point three million dollar house. I don't think this is a I don't think I'm stealing from anybody who's in the middle class by buying that. And that's 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 how I sleep well at night, knowing at least I'm not super part of the problem. But technically, I think we all I don't know. Are. But you could even say that with buying like anything. You're buying stocks. Oh, well, yeah. you're a part of the problem because you made the S&P 500 go up a little bit because you're buying the index. Yeah, and but you could also argue that stocks are not essentials, whereas, you know, having a house to start a family kind of is. So it's, it's a different thing. I don't know. The whole the, the whole thing goes back to, to building wealth really at the core, right? And so anything yeah. you do, like ideally, if you, I, the best thing to probably do for the economy is like, don't buy any stocks, don't invest at all and spend all of your money would probably be the best for the economy. If everyone just spent all of their money and didn't invest, maybe economically, uh, you know, things would be better. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. You know, if you're talking about wealth inequality specifically, imagine if every person, let's say in the United States of America, um, at 18, 19 years old, had a pretty good base level of understanding of how the financials markets worked, how housing prices worked, um, how credit cards worked, savings accounts, you know, a CD accounts. Imagine. And I just wonder, like, if we had that sort of society, um, if we would actually be in a much, much better place and wealth inequality and these sorts of things wouldn't be as big of a deal or maybe it still is a big deal, um, you know. But I, I do I wish like, like people were more educated. So. I feel like if that was the case, Bitcoin would be like a million dollars by now. <laughs> yeah, what would, what would realistically end up happening? People wouldn't. People would save way more money. They would invest right. way more money, and they would yes. they they wouldn't spend as much. So I think you'd get a lot of services so, not seeing as much demand. Yeah, but think about this for a moment, guys. I, I'll push back against that a little bit because I think all of I think all three of us spend actually quite a bit of money out there but mainly because what we did over time is we invested our money to put ourselves in a position where we could spend a lot more money and i think if we ever had if we had the mentality let's say 10 years ago or 15 years ago whenever we started our financial journeys right and let's say we had the mentality of just spending 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 i can tell you i would have never built up to 200k in stocks um i would have never been able to start my real estate marketing company i would have never started my youtube channel and those sorts of things so it's kind of like a butterfly effect where it's like Maybe you never get to, and I wouldn't be able to spend the type of money I'm able to spend. And it's only because I invest along the way, right? And that could possibly be true for all three of us. So, you know, it's butterfly effect, man. It's crazy. It's like one action does another action. So if you, one thing we do know is if you have more money, you spend a lot more money, right? Mm. Um, that's just like factual. And I, and I think all three of us are pretty frugal. Um, with, with Graham and, and Andre, I think you guys are more frugal than me, but at the end of the day, all three of us are fairly frugal considering like what we have versus what we spend. But at the end yeah. of the day, you guys spend massively more than the, the average person. It's not even True. close. Right. This is and true. you've got that because you, you continue to invest and continue to build your wealth and buy real estate and buy stocks and index funds and crypto and all these things. Right. So I don't know. Uh, the crazy stuff. Jeremy, let me ask how many houses do you own now? Uh, only, only three, only three. You bored <laughs> you. His first, his first thing is to say only. <laughs> well, it's because, only. 
it's because I'm on this this uh, show with somebody that owns like so many houses. I can't count them on both hands. So, Graham, you own how there. many? Like twelve? Eight. No. Eight. Okay. Only eight. Only only eight. <laughs> when are you gonna That's get to a, Kevin's level? Doesn't he own like twenty or something? I, I don't know. I think it's definitely in the teens. I could be in the twenties. Um, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do, See, do you ever feel you... like I don't ahead, know? Do you ahead. ever feel like like ah, oh, I'm I'm overweighted in real estate, or like I should diversify, or me? No, not anymore. I did, uh, and then I started buying index funds, and then now that now I feel like they're pretty evenly weighted, and okay. um, now I could go back to maybe getting back into real estate. I think that's the choice I kind of want. I, I kind of feel better now that I'm even to go probably back into. It is because I, I love the consistent income of real estate that I don't get do you, so much. Do you think it's a bad idea? Control. Do you think it's a bad idea that I bought a house right now? Do you think it's a bad time? I don't personally. I don't like the house that you bought. I thought. I don't okay. think it's bad, but I think uh -huh. from a cash flow perspective, you're right. No, cash flow perspective, there are. Yes, I would have been better off buying three or four three hundred thousand dollar homes than that one. This is true. Yes. Yeah. The only reason, the reason I justified it as that, it wasn't so much for the um, cash flow or like even the price appreciation perspective. I just wanted to park my money somewhere. And it's a community that I've always wanted to live in. And I don't, if this house doesn't even cash flow and I can't rent it out, which would be impossible, then I would live in it and I would cash flow this house that I'm living in right now. So, well, Andre, yeah. let me, you, let me Andre, say something. You, wait, wait, you, Jeremy. Okay. Yeah. One thing that Andre could have done instead of doing the house is put your money. In cryptocurrency, all thanks to our video sponsor. Who is wait this way? Who is that, Andre? Is that FTX? Is FTX? Are they one of the largest and most complete U.S. regulated cryptocurrency exchanges in the world, with over six million users who buy, sell, track, and trade cryptocurrencies and NFTs all in one place, right from their phone? Is that FTX? Are they also down below in the description? They're down there in the description, and now you can even use them. To buy stocks, which is pretty amazing. So now stocks and crypto, FTX, and NFTs. Uh, yeah, and F what yeah. can't you do with FTX? Buy a million dollar house? Maybe they have that coming next. You, gotta, see, you, you can't convince it. Jeremy to buy crypto. That's for sure. <laughs> but see, Andre could have used them because they have no fixed minimum fees on transactions. They got no ACH fees, no withdrawal fees, and no NFT fees on the top Ethereum and Solana collections. They're also one of the most popular cryptocurrency tracking platforms, which allow their users to track prices throughout more than 10,000 different options. And you could get free crypto on every trade over $10. Like I just bought Bitcoin the other day and I got a free Dogecoin. Mm. I thought that was kind of neat. So if you're interested, the link is down below in the description. And like I said, their fees are up to 85% lower than some of their top competitors. So if you're interested, they do sponsor the channel. We love them. They are down below in the description. And Andre, you could have done that. Instead of buying your house. This is true. I should have yeah. done that. Man, Andre, I wish I had that money. I wish <laughs> I would buy so many Tattoo Chef and Honest Shares. Planet, $2. Ah! <laughs> How many millions of dollars did you already invest in, into Tattoo Chef? An undisclosed amount. No, I, I have just a small seven-figure. <laughs> yes, all of, it. <laughs> all of it. All of it. Uh, but don't even, don't even get me started on the chef because I'll just start going on a 20-minute tangent on talking <laughs> oh, about no. the bullish thesis, okay? Let's just go to the next slide before I start talking. Jeremy, okay? hold on. Wait, wait, oh. wait, wait. 
Okay. What, what hasn't happened for Tattooed Chef that still needs to? Like, I feel like we've gone through the Roni Rona. People have been indoors. You know, that whole thing happened. And now we're out of that. Now there's fear in the market. Like, what needs to happen on a macro scale for TTCF to take off to the moon? <laughs> to take off to the moon. I think, well, boy, we're going to have to do a history lesson, okay? Give so, me like a, in a nutshell. Like wait, the in a nutshell, seconds. no one ever heard of Tattooed Chef 18 months ago. And they've went from, they were in almost no stores 18 months ago. No one ever heard of the brand 18 months ago to now you walk into a Target store and there are freezers full of Tattoo Chef items and they have four of the top sell, uh, four of the top five best-selling frozen entrees out there. It's absolutely amazing. They're, uh, they're tearing it up. And uh, as far as the underlying business model, it's doing amazing. They're, they're going through a time period where the market's not respecting their stock price because everything's getting hammered, which we're about to get into small caps. This will be a nice transition. But um, in this sort of market, if you're a small cap stock, it doesn't matter what you're doing on your business model right now. You're, you're not getting any love. I don't know any small caps that are getting love in this market outside of maybe energy uh, because oil is going so insane. But most of those are mid, mids and large. So there's really nothing Tattoo Chef can do right now with their business model. Like, for instance, the next quarter doesn't matter what growth rate they report. The stock's probably, quote unquote, probably not making a huge move just because if that if the market doesn't want to buy it, the market doesn't want to buy it. And that's what's, what's the P-E ratio of TTCF right now? Well, they're not profitable yet, so they have no P oh. ratio. But their their price uh, to sales, which is kind of how you're going to value like a growth stock, their price to sales is about a three. Their forward price to sales is probably like a three, three, three point three, something like that which is fairly low for how high of a growth company they are. But yeah, a stock like that, you're not going to get love. You're not going to get love until the market switches and wants to go risk on. And mm. we don't know when that's going to happen. But, but weren't yeah. we risk on not that long ago? Like, I mean, it's only recently that we got risk off. So what, what, what happened there? Yeah, and risk on was when, when Chef went over 20, um, you know, and the okay. stock was doing really well. And then as soon as the market started to flip and then, and then, uh, you know, the chef, they, they messed up a, like a quarterly report essentially where they had to postpone last minute between mm. those two things, the stock just got devastated. And, uh, that's why it's like a $12 stock here today. So, okay. um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing because the stocks actually held up pretty well. The stocks up in the past month, it's up in the past six weeks, despite all these other stocks getting absolutely devastated. So there might just be a core shareholder base that understands what's going yeah. on. I think it could have very well hit a point uh, because what do they say? When a stock hits bottom, it's when even negative news doesn't affect it. And it seems like Tattoo Chef is one of those, uh, probably a dozen stocks that's like, no matter what, like Robinhood, I think is a, is an example of like, how, how much worse can things get? But Robinhood's still at 10 to $11. It's like, no matter mm -hmm. what happens at this point, Robinhood is 10 to $11. Right. Yeah, there's quite a few companies that trade around that same range, not necessarily at ten to eleven dollars, but who just no matter what happens, it's just well, the stock price trades within a five percent window. The the tough thing, uh, and I'll say this about in the difference between like a tattooed chef and maybe an honest as well in some of these other companies versus like maybe a Robin Hood or some of the meme stocks that maybe some folks were in is Tattoo Chef has incredible revenue growth and should for years to go in the future, like just grow and grow and grow, right? Honest is the same situation. Some of these stocks like Robinhood, their revenue could potentially go negative over the next couple quarters. And so you have a very different fundamental thing going on with those business models, the actual underlying business models. Um, in a devastating market, it's going to hit all stocks. But if you can't grow, you, you're, your stock's not going to be respected. So that's just yeah. the way it is. But 
you know, looking at this here, guys, the small S&P 600 small cap, and I know this might be a little niche for a lot of people, but I, I like to introduce folks to the rabbit hole sometimes. So what we're looking at is just think about these as smaller companies in general, a lot of companies with maybe, you know, a billion, two billion dollar type valuations, things like that. By the way, Corsair is going to get included into the S&P 600 small caps, which is really bullish news for that. Nice. But if you look at this right now, we're trading at like a 13.7 for S&P 600 small caps. In every single time you've gotten around this range or below, it's you you very shortly after went into a massive bull market. It happened in 0203, it happened in 0809, it happened in around 2011 into kind of 12, and it happened in March of 2020. In every single one of those, within a few months, you started this massive upward bull market that lasted usually a couple of years. So maybe this is that one time where it's like maybe this is different. Um, I don't see it that way. It's just you can you can stay at these valuations for maybe a few months, but it's completely unsustainable. And eventually you're going to go on a massive bull run. And that's what I see playing out. It's just like, when does it start? Is it like a few weeks, a few months? You know, the end of this year, we, we don't know. But, uh, you know, the chart, the chart's pretty attractive. What do you guys think about something like that? You, know, you might not usually look at that, but do you, what's your opinion on that? Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride, or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com build. That's chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is this considered technical analysis? No, no, I'm just, not really. No, okay. <laughs> this, this is a uh, this is this is actually more fundamental analysis. I just, uh, just like look look at this blue line. It's never been lower than that. <laughs> that means it's gonna go up soon. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, as you see though, in two thousand eight and nine, it did get significantly worse, but. I, you know, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a regular rotation, just as I wouldn't be surprised if things stay at this level for longer than expected. Even if you look at 2001, 2002, 2003, went up and then it dipped right back down again. We could we could see a similar position to that. Uh, could stay down for longer yeah, than expected. I, I think anything like this, whatever you don't expect is going to happen will happen. Okay, you guys could discuss. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to overlay this graph right here with interest rates. And I want to see how it lines up because Ooh. my suspicion is that every time these charts have gone up, I feel like interest rates have started to decline in those Ooh. environments. 
You know, which is if why. We were, I was going to say, Andre, if we wanted to take it one step further, we would also overlay the S&P 600 small cap on top of that. And then we could, we could have three things overlaid. No, because that would be that would be quite interesting. I don't know if you could do that or not, but that would be I, amazing. Okay, I, I'm just going to say my hypothesis is in the in the time that it goes up is is when the Federal Reserve started to, to decrease the interest rates. And because we are near zero still, we don't have that same catalyst for us to go back up. And that was the whole thing I just mentioned before with Warren Buffett and John Vogel saying the same thing, where it's like, we don't have the cannon. We don't have the cannon power anymore to get us to go back up like that because our interest rates are already so low. There's no macro catalyst like that. So hold on. Let me, let me find some. Yeah. That. That, that's an interesting thought there, Andre. Yeah, I would love to see that as well. But what you do, I think it is important to understand about these sorts of time periods is like you like you looked at their gram where it touched below this line in 0203. So that's a, over a, probably a six month span there. 0809, we were at, uh, you know, down there for that's probably six months, nine months. Um, 2011, 12, that's probably only like a month or two there. Um, and obviously March of 2020, that was for maybe a month or, or two there. So, but at the end of the day, you can, you can remain low like this for potentially several months. And I think that's an important part. And that's why I can't really like play short-term call options. Although it's very tempting to like, be like, I'm going to play three month out call options or something. Can't do it because you can easily stay in these ranges for several months. And so it's like, mm -hmm. you know, you're likely going to get a, a boom, but, but you know, you have to kind of play the waiting game there. So, right. I can't wait to see your technical analysis here, Andre, your fancy chart, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> what are you talking about? I never use charts. You're, you're just out here charting Bitcoin all day, day trading it, making millions, <laughs> buying million-dollar houses. Oh, my gosh, man. Jesus. No. Incredible. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, Alex, if you want to take it to, to the next slide in the meantime, and then uh, Andre can, can keep prepping this. So I thought you guys would think this is interesting. Vegas home prices are talking about – you know, they can't keep climbing this fast forever. Median sales price of previously owned single family homes. The bulk of the market was $450,000 in February, up 3.4% or $15,000 just from the all-time record, which was set in January. Last month's median price was almost 27% above where we were at in February of 2021. And uh, it's just incredible, these numbers. This, this person says, uh, L LVR president says, Local home prices can't keep going up this fast forever. The increases we've been seeing in the last year are so not sustainable, which I agree with. I don't know if yeah. you guys have a perspective on that. Yeah, what they don't tell you is that sustainable uh, is totally different from they can't be sustained at this level. So, mm. no, I do not think can can we go up 30 percent a year every year? Absolutely not. That's unsustainable. But can we go up 30 percent and then stay at that same price for an extended period of time? That, I think, is a different story. So it seems like overall, everyone is saying these these increases are unsustainable, and I agree with that. But uh, at the same time, even CoreLogic says that they expect housing prices to go up, I think, 4%. Zillow is the most ambitious. Zillow expects housing prices to increase another 18% over the next year. Zillow. Uh, Redfin, I think, was like 12%. But, I mean, it seems to be that, yeah, I, I think home price growth is beginning to taper off. It's beginning to be a little slower. But I think oh, maybe housing prices could stay pretty high. 
And in, in terms of your feelings around that, Graham, is that based upon any data you're looking at or just kind of like your your overall feeling and kind of the vibes of the market that you're feeling were kind of tapering off this? this I, mean, that's, I mean, that's based on their analysis. But also when you look objectively at the housing market, there's there's not a lot right now that would cause a very sudden decline in values. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you would you would have to see a panic of people wanting to sell their homes. But even then, people have locked in such low interest rates. They don't want to leave. And that's something that we saw happen back in 2011. People uh, had, I think it was, no, sorry, 2011 to 2016, people locked in very low interest rates. And I remember in 2016, a lot of sellers were hesitant to move. And that's what led to an initial housing shortage because people had locked in these low rates. They didn't want to go anywhere because if they had to move, well, then they're giving getting up that mortgage and getting something more expensive. And if housing prices are the same, it just costs them more money. So we did see a slight decline in, I think it was 2018, towards the end of 2018, when the Fed was more ambitious of raising rates. So that's something we could see. But even then, I think the decline was limited to certain regions up to 8 to 10%. I think, I think like San Diego was like 10%. But that was, uh, but that was the worst of it. So can you you remind folks, Graham, you know, because obviously you were you were in L.A. at that time, um, you know, in the 08, 09 recession crash, whatever you want to call it, which, you know, for real estate still hit till like 2011. Did L.A. real estate get hit hard during that time? Did it not? Yeah, it did. Uh, It depends on the area. Some prices were down about I would say almost everything was down like 30 percent. So it didn't matter what it is. That's 30 percent. But that's from Mm. the peak in like 2006. And then some other areas in California were hit like 80%. San Bernardino and Riverside and parts like Fresno, uh, Palmdale, I think was another big hard hit area. All of those areas, you could buy a house for like 80% of its value in 2006, yeah. 2005. So yes, certain areas were hit a lot harder. Even Beverly Hills was like 30, 40%. So yes, everywhere when, got hit hard. When did you buy your first property? Yeah, so was that, it 11? Sorry, 2011. Uh, Okay. So there, this is the overlay of the interest rate. So it kind of corresponds, Jeremy. I mean, look at that. So from 99 to, let's say, 2002, you see interest rates falling. And look at the stock market in that same time period. Well, okay. So it's going up. Okay. Look at another one. Look at, look at the 08 area. 08, you could see we're starting to drop. Look at that. S&P 600 shooting up. Well, I mean, let me let me clear this up because I think there might be okay. some confusion here. So, what we're looking at here, this is S and P six hundred small cap forward PE metric. So, this mm-hmm. isn't we would have to overlay the S and P six hundred index in order to see really what you want to see here, Andre. So, unfortunately, I think we might have to add another line in if possible. Uh, no, because, yeah, I'll, I'll, find, I'll find it. Okay, okay, because that that would be good because just for for reference here, forward P for folks that maybe don't know. That's looking at a company's next 12 months of expected earnings, right? Versus their their market capitalization. So let's say you're a company that's expected to have $100 million of net income next year over the next 12 months, right? Um, You divide it out by your market cap. Let's say it's a billion dollars. You have a forward P of 10, right? And so you'd be on on a 10 scale. And so looking at this, it can can kind of be confusing sometimes because companies can obviously, uh, their earnings can go up and down and, and all around. So it's not a direct correlation, but I'm going to be interested to see that. But um, back to you, Graham. So you bought first your yeah. first piece of real estate in 2011. Was that the bottom of the market in, in 11? Did you buy your first right around yes. the bottom? Or? Yeah, it's pretty much the bottom, plus or minus maybe like a few months. 
But yeah, that was wow. pretty much the bottom because I got a lot of these properties under contract earlier than that, where the market was just as bad. And that was at the time where, where housing values started to go up in value to the point where you would make an offer with the bank and the bank would take like three to six months to get back to you. And you started to see banks asking for more money. Start, I mean, we're talking, talking maybe five, 10 grand. I mean, you know, but they started to say, well, you know, things are maybe turning around. We're going to ask for a little bit more and they'll get it. So yeah, it was, it was, I locked in at the bottom and then within a little bit from there. And was that like a, a super memorable day for you when you bought your first property or not really? Yeah, yeah it was. It was? Okay. No, absolutely. Had, how'd you get that property? Was it a, was it a client or is it just a, a house you saw out there and you're like, I, I want to buy this or call no, it was a house I saw. So I had a client. And so initially I had a client who was buying uh, a lot of properties in San Bernardino and I looked at this guy and he was, he was really, I mean, he was so smart. He was a guy from Beverly Hills, had a lot of money, was really successful. What was it? I think he was a lawyer or a doctor. I think he was a lawyer. Um, and he's buying all these properties on the side. And I was the one writing those offers. And when I saw him writing, like he, he would write multiple offers. He just say, send an address, write an offer for this, this price center at the bank. Just get, get in the habit of doing that. And I started to realize, wait a second, let me look into this area too. So I started doing a lot of research into the area because before he would just tell me, I want this property. I didn't know why. So mm -hmm. I started spending every single weekend driving to San Bernardino, seeing like 20 homes. And, you know, every time I'd be out there, go and see homes, go and see homes. And I did that for months. And pretty quickly, you get a good, a good understanding of like what these houses are worth, what they're renting for. And it got to a point where me, it was such an easy decision because the replacement value of this house, like if you wanted to rebuild these houses, it was like 250, 300 grand. And it didn't make any sense to me how you could buy a house for 60 to $100,000 that costs $300,000 to build again. And to me, that yep. was such a sure thing that it was like, it doesn't matter what the value is. I'm, I'm buying this for a fraction of its replacement value. So I felt so comfortable about dumping everything I had because it's like, it was so cheap relative to what it should cost. I'm like, there's no way this could be sustained forever. That mm -hmm. that's genius. And then, uh, but that house, you didn't live in it, right? You, you did you rent it or how'd that yeah, rent it out? Wow. That's, that's incredible. So you bought your first house wasn't even for you. It was just for a rental and you still yeah. rented your, so when, what house number were you at when you finally, uh, lived, lived in a property that you owned then? Uh, house number. Well, all, so I bought three at the same time. So that okay. was like one, two, three, back to back, uh, the fourth, the fourth property. That Dang. was the one I bought in, yeah. Okay, we got to get into this. How did you buy three at all at the same time? Do you have some massive commission or you just been saving money like crazy? Oh, or? It's, it's, it's tough for me because I've, I've explained this so many times. But, oh, uh, I'm sorry. But I, yeah, yeah. I might not know. I, I, as your friend, I don't even actually know this story, That's so true. I apologize. Uh, that was three and a half, almost, that was almost four years of saving as a real estate agent. Um, so, yeah, so because I started selling real estate in 2008. Uh, it was like April 2008 is when I started. So mm -hmm. I just saved as much as I possibly could. And um, I just used, I used three and a half to um, almost four years of savings. Um, and some of those, like I knew I had deals that were about to close. So I'd be like, you know, rolling those commissions into buying these places, just knowing that, okay, this is going to close. And I have this commission closing that'll pay for that. And then I'd, I'd close, but then I wouldn't have the money for a renovation. But I knew that like, okay, this deal was supposed to close escrow in like two weeks after that. So in two weeks, I'll have the money to use on that. So, I basically rolled everything I had into these properties, but one was uh, 60 grand. The other was uh, 70 grand. The other was 115. 
Wow. Th those oh, prices, you know, that wasn't even what I was thinking. I was thinking like it would be like a half million, no. like a $700,000. That's no, gotcha. crazy. Yeah. Wow. These, these were, that's what I was saying. So it's like, I'm buying these properties at like 60 to 80 for you know, 60, 70 grand, uh, doing yeah. minimal repairs because most of them are in good condition. It's just the market took a hit. Nothing to do with the house. So, yeah. Yeah. So but, everybody, yeah. everybody in the comment section, we need to know if you knew that story or not. If you're a real <laughs> Graham fan, if you knew that story, yeah, yeah. Graham just told right there. Okay. Yeah. But, <laughs> but now it's, it's, it's a lot different. And, uh, and it's, it's weird for me because I, I made so many housing videos, uh, mm -hmm. teach, you know, teaching, like, here's what you do to find a house. Here's what's undervalued, but a lot. And I made those videos with the expectation that they would be, that it would be the same 10 years from now. But now it's like you go back to those videos I made four years ago and you can't it's it's not like you could find a property that's under market value because back then, like even three years ago, it was entirely possible to be it's just to tell people, hey, you got to find a home that's that's 15 percent under market. Buy that home. You're in instant equity. Fix it up. You'll make 30 percent pretty quick. The those wedge deals, deal. Yeah, the wedge deal. Those uh, those deals don't exist. Uh, I'm sure they do. But the amount of time and effort it takes to find those deals is, uh, you know, is, is your time better spent elsewhere? Maybe so, it is. So, so the uh, the vertical, what do you call them? Not velocity. Gosh, what's the right word for it? The the intensity of the verticals is not to scale. Yeah. But but you can kind of see a picture here. So if you look at two thousand, starting at two thousand, right? Interest rates drop. You could see the market starts to pick up interest rates go up in 2004, guess what? There's, you know, market goes down. After 08, you could see interest rates drop to zero. Going to 2010 to 2016, you could see interest rates are zero. The market's going up and up and up and up until 2018, 2019, let's say, right? Interest rates start to go up and you it cuts off at the top, but you can see that it falls off. The market actually falls off. Mm -hmm. in 2019 now that well, that was rona so maybe that's not quite interest rate related but kind of lines up and then we drop rates to zero again and the market takes back up again so it's the, it's the same thing it's it's the exact opposite rates go to zero market grows rates go up market goes down yeah i, I mean I, I disagree a little bit so alex if you want to roll us a little bit over to the side there so, so for instance you see rates start to go up in 04 right and rates mm -hmm. keep going up all the way to 06 07 roughly and then yep. they taper off but during that time the market goes up from 04 to 06 07 where it peaked i think it's peaked in summer of 2007 i mean the market kept going up so um you know in, yeah. in rates rates were going down for instance in the let's see the, the tech bubble time and meanwhile the during that time, well, see, this is the confusing part because we're looking at SP 600, but I remember that the market got absolutely wrecked from 2000 to about 2002. NASDAQ, SP, pretty much everything because the tech bubble blew up, obviously. And that was in a time period where they were dropping rates uh, from over 6%, it looks like in 2000, about 1% by the time we got to 03. And then rates started going back up, but the market started going back up after that. So I don't know, man. I don't. I don't see. Yeah, a, a, this will help if the graph was like more to scale would. with the vertical. Um, but I, I don't know how to get it to that point. But yeah. either way, I just think if the Fed has used up all of its firepower to drop rates to zero, there, there's not much of a catalyst for risk on to get back into it. Which kind of I think backs up, you know, Kevin's macro thesis, right? Like that's why he left because he thought the Fed was against us. And I think to some degree he was right, 
it, it's just like I don't think it's smart to try to time the market. And in, in some way, I could see his perspective. He's trying to time the cycle, not necessarily like in individual stocks. Um, just so you know, Kevin's like mostly invested now. He's, he's invested now. He's like 70% in, right? Yeah. 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 He's gotten back into it. So that that's kind of but, invalidates his theory. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, looking at this, guys, it, it's an interesting perspective. I was thinking about this the other day. We're almost very brainwashed and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but we're almost like brainwashed on we think the only way the economy can do well and stocks can go up and these sorts of things is if rates are at zero, right? Right. And um, I don't know. Well, we'll see, obviously, over time if that's true. But, I mean, you look at, for instance, rates started going up in, you know, 15, 16, and the economy still was doing well as we went into 17, 18, 19. And we'll never know if they kept going rates up in 20, um, what would have happened there if we never had Rona. But, I, I mean, I think we're almost like not giving – the, the U.S. economy enough credit nowadays. And we think the only way we can have a prosperous economy and the only way we can have stock price going up is if we have rates at zero. And um, I, I don't buy into it, to be honest. I think we've just been brainwashed to think the Fed's the hero. And that's the but, only but, thing. But, but, but Jeremy, that's because, and I actually did a video on this, so I pulled it up, um, the information. So look, between, it would help if we had uh, some some picture to overlay it, but just okay. So hear me out. Between six, 1964, right to 1981, the GDP went from 670 to 3,124. So it, it 4.6 x in that 17 year time frame. Now you would think then the stock market would also go up at least somewhat in line with that, but it actually went down. In 1964, the S and P started at 700, and by 1981, even though the GDP 4 x we went down to 418, almost by half. So, you know, that was a huge drag because of interest rates, because in that same time period, interest rates went up like crazy. That, that was the crazy inflation that we had. So, yep. so that, that's why people say this, like, that's all people pay attention to. And that's the whole phrase, like, don't fight the Fed, right? Mm -hmm. And I, like, I, I could see that. So I could see why people are trying to somewhat time using interest rates, because they are so important. Yeah. And I think looking back at that time frame, you know, might not be the best context. I know a lot of people do it and they look and they're like, look at, but I mean, think about it. You know, if you could get 8%, 10%, 12% on a savings account or, or bonds or whatever, I mean, gosh, you know, why put the money in the market when it's like guaranteed like that? And I can tell you, it would be a very bad thing if, if suddenly tomorrow savings accounts, bonds, everything yielded you 8%, 9%, 10%. The stock market would drop 20, 30 percent oh, the would. next day. Yeah. 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 So. Stock At market least. would crash so hard. Yeah. Yep. 100 percent. The market would crash the very next day, vicious, um, and would for like weeks or maybe months ago in the future until it finally normalized. But, you know, uh, the question is, do we ever get back to those sorts of numbers? Because I feel like you almost need like at least four percent to get on like a savings account, if not higher than that, to really get your attention and be like, you know what? Instead of putting money in a, the S&P 500 today, I'm going to put money in a savings account. Is there a specific number you guys look at? That no, you're that's like, a great question. I've always yeah. thought about that too. Like what threshold it, does it come a point to where bonds make more sense than stocks? There, there has to be a much more like 
I think a much I more think, clearly defined way to explain it, but I don't I don't know exactly how. Yeah, the last the last survey there was a study that was done in terms of interest rates and risk taking, and they determined that I think it was when interest rates dropped below I think it was like four percent, it encouraged excessive risk taking. Mm. Um, I think five percent was the point where people began to place more money in safer assets. So I for me I would guess it would probably be somewhere around five percent. Ooh, okay. So around 5% would be that number. So if Ally, let's say, gave you 5% tomorrow, Graham, that would be the one where you're like, you know what? I might I might just go savings mm -hmm. account today instead of index fund. No? Very tempting because, okay. uh, yeah, do, extremely tempting. Do you think a lot a lot of that has to do with people's debt and the interest rate on their debt? Because it's like, you know, would I rather pay down a guaranteed, like if my, if my interest rate on my debt, say 3%, then I probably wouldn't want to put it in a bond at 4%. I'd rather risk it in the stock market at 7%, right? So it's like, it's almost like you have a guaranteed built in return into debt. So if you're somebody who has credit card debt or a home loan, and it's say three to 4% interest on that loan, then you know, paying down that debt gives you a guaranteed rate of whatever the debt is at. So I feel like the, the, the question really depends on people's debt levels and the interest rate on their debt. Oh, uh, what do, we, do you guys know what we're looking at here? Mean allocations to risky asset in different interest. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so this is it. So as you can see, when interest rates were zero, 70% uh, of people allocated money to riskier assets mm -hmm. versus when interest rates were 5%, that declined to 50. So only 50, half yeah. of people. Uh, and so as you can see, then obviously uh, it continues from there. But yeah, five yeah. to ten percent is the point where you see a big drop off, even three percent, a big drop off look, between. Okay, this look look at the ten to fifteen percent. Who in their right mind at fifteen percent doesn't just put all their money into into that well, bond? Yeah, but but most likely at fifteen percent example is probably high inflation, or they're probably they're, there's something where interest rates have to be at fifteen percent to make sense. Yeah, yeah, but why wouldn't there be more people like like seventy percent at that point? Being you know. Well, uh, l let me ask you, Andre, if you could get guaranteed 10% from the bank tomorrow, yeah. would you continue to put money in Bitcoin? 100%. You would still put money in Bitcoin? 1,000%. What if it's 15%? No, I already answered. 1,000% is when I wouldn't consider it. <laughs> no, okay, okay, I got you. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, uh, at what point? That's a good question. Like you're saying, at what point does the bank have to offer me for me to not invest in Bitcoin? Yeah, to say I'm not putting new money if I got an extra $10,000 to invest this week or this um, month. The, the way for me to answer that question, I guess, is to look at the historical return of Bitcoin, which has been, I think, average of 200%. So I guess somewhere in that ballpark. Now, it's not going to be 200% per year for the next 10 years. It'll probably be closer to, I don't know. I have to do the math on that, but it would depend. But I would say 200% is the, is, is the starting point to get me interested. It would be interesting. I can tell you it'd be interesting to see, uh, you know, what happens with Bitcoin in an environment where you could actually get um, good returns from just a savings account or CD accounts or bonds or whatever, right? Because Bitcoin's grown up its entire life in basically an interest rates at zero type environment, right? Right. Um, and so it'll be interesting to just see how specifically crypto asset class and specifically Bitcoin, how those will react in that sort of environment. So, but I feel like we're going to be in that environment for for like indefinitely. I don't think we'll ever climb back up to the, the you know, the time of the 70s, 80s, 90s. Like we're not we're never going to see interest rates at 
six to seven percent just just for decades like i don't think we're ever going back to that era wow famous like last words we're in next year at this time no i'm not saying i'm not saying we'll never be there yeah. i'm saying that we we won't revert to the median there yeah yeah. Jay Powell goes crazy over the next uh, <laughs> year, and he's like, "Guys, we're raising one percentage point every time." He's, he's watching this video. He's like, "Wait, what'd you say to me?" Oh no, <laughs> let me show them wrong. <laughs> oh, okay, for you, Andre. So this is this is a fun subject here. So this guy who owns Fashion Nova, which if you've ever gone on Instagram one time in your life, you've sure you've heard of Fashion Nova yeah. before. He bought the one. That crazy epic house in LA, 21 bedrooms, 49 For I think he stole the house, 141 mil. And I think originally they were asking 500 million. 500, or yeah, I remember, yeah. Dude, I'm thinking he probably bought it as some sort of business expense. I'll probably do photo shoots for the models and yes. stuff. I'm like, it's genius. I think it was, a, I think my personal opinion, that's actually a great buy and he stole the house. I think he stole it. I don't think you could rebuild that house. No, you couldn't. Yeah, the guy was in it. Like, I think, what was it, $190 million? How much the guy spent over 10 years oh just, to build, just to build the house. And then you also have to account for all the time, the expertise. There's no way you could rebuild that house today with the new zoning requirements. Um, I actually thought he got a good deal on it, too. But you got to think how many people realistically are out there wanting to be in the market to buy this house? Very few. And I agree. I think it's going to be like the Wish house. I think Wish Wish has been buying and leasing some really nice properties, and they're using them as places for like influencers, photo shoots, just like Talking you said. Wish.com. Wish. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing this, and they're going to find a way to write off the majority of it as like some sort of business expense. Just for some reference, Wish has been trading around a dollar a share recently. So. Dang. Yeah. Well, but but Grant, how, I will yeah. say. Do you remember? Do you remember going to the the dude's house for uh, New Year's? Yeah, I do. That was interesting. Not, yeah, not my not my favorite night, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was. I, I'm just not I'm just not one for parties, and when there's too many people, I I don't. Totally. I don't yeah. yeah, no, that's it fair. So, yeah, I will say, man, imagine you know, in in a city of the rich, right, which is L.A. This guy's got the house in LA. Like how that's such a flex on all the other rich people that it's like, <laughs> don't matter what house you have, I have a better house than you. So I just say that's 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 a flex, man. But uh yeah, but does he have a board eight? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I actually have a whole collection, but no. <laughs> yeah. I have so, a whole menagerie. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah, I mean it, Man, I, anyways, I, I think we all agree. He stole this house. Uh, good for him. Crazy, crazy, crazy. That's all I'll say about that. You know, how long that took to build? Insane. All right, what else we got here, Alex? Ooh, all right, Andre. This one's, I got this one specifically right. for you. Biden is supposed to have some executive order on crypto tomorrow. Do you have expectations of this? What are you hearing? Why, I know why tomorrow? What do you know that I don't know? Tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. Is it tomorrow? Yeah, it what should be tomorrow. tomorrow. Uh, my friend said it was supposed to be Wednesday. So tomorrow's Wednesday. So oh, we, as far as I'm aware, we've been hearing it's, it's supposed to be next week for like two months now. Yeah. Uh, I don't, th I don't think. Well, we're gonna okay, so even, even this is off CoinDesk from today. It says the order, which is expected to be issued this week. And my friend yeah. is a fairly reliable source. And he was telling me Wednesday. So, okay, so um, all right, I'll be honest. I, I have a know. video coming out tomorrow about it. So you could learn more there. But. Ooh. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, but well, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little something. What's up? 
you got to give us a little something here on, on what you're what you're thinking. Yeah. So no, Graham, Graham was right. We've been talking about this. I, I feel like for the last month or two, where it's like, oh, it's next week. It's coming. It's coming. It, it was supposed to be February for a long time now, and the reason that it's coming now and we're talking about it again is because um, our Congress doesn't really understand how crypto works nor technology. And they seem to think that foreign countries are going to use crypto, um, you know, during war uh, to, you know, go around the uh, financial sanctions. And so they're afraid they don't they don't want Russia, China using crypto to trade with each other. And so they want to get these regulations out ASAP. And that's why they're pushing it for this week. Um, but uh, we, we don't know exactly what's going to be in this executive order uh, other than kind of like the, the major talking points. But it's kind of going to be a nothing burger. Like it's it's going to be Joe Biden basically telling um, uh, government agencies to look into creating policies, regulations, studies, and then reporting back. That's all he's. It's basically mm -hmm. saying, you, 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 go figure out what this thing is all about. Report back to me, and then we'll figure it out later. That's all this is going to be really. Um, the the biggest threat, uh, the biggest thing that this this executive order I think would have in it is a call to the EPA, right, the Environmental Protection Agency, to look at to the um, carbon emissions footprint for Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, they're just going to try to see uh, what the impact is. And that's going to be the biggest catalyst for, you know, Bitcoin to be, I guess, in integrated as into uh, created into a spot ETF, right? Uh, that, that's that's going to be the, the scarier point. But they, 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 did, they did some studies on, on the um, carbon emissions footprint. And it's pretty insane, like what it revealed. And I'll, I'll, I'll share with you in, in the video the statistics. But it's it's like it's crazy because Bitcoin has such a bad rep about being, you know, uh, a waste of resources and that it's not efficient. But uh, anyway, I don't want to go too deep, deep into it, but it's it's really good what, what they found. Okay. As long as the EPA does a good job and stays objective about their research, then Bitcoin will be fine. But... It's going to be a nothing burger. I don't think it's going to be a bad. If anything, it's a great thing because regulation has been like this dark cloud hanging over Bitcoin. Um, but once we get some clarity, it'll be great. Unfortunately, I don't think this executive order is going to get any clarity on anything. Okay. Well, it's interesting to know because I think a lot of people hear executive order and they think this is some sort of final decision and he's going yeah, to come right. down with a sledgehammer. But you're basically no. saying no. No, it's going to assign committees on subcommittees on committees to look on whatever they could find because yeah. they have no idea what they're dealing with. What are, what are your sources saying, Graham? Same thing as Andre. I think it's going to be absolutely nothing. They've been saying it's going to be next week for like a month, some, maybe even two months it's been. As far as I'm aware, it's, it's for developing, like instead of that you have the SEC, you know, on securities, they want to develop a new framework for, regula for regulation of a cryptocurrency to make sure these silly rug pulls stop happening and and def better defining what is a security what is a currency uh promotion i think there's going to be a lot i think a lot of good overall is going to come from it yeah it's it's funny though uh th there's been two agencies in, in the government that have been fighting over the the regulation for crypto and that's the sec and the cftc right the cftc the commodity futures trading commission which they're the guys that in 2015, they were like, ah, Bitcoin's a commodity. This is a good thing. We want Bitcoin to be a commodity. Um, but the SEC wants to be really tough on, on crypto. So it's like good cop, bad cop. The SEC is the bad cop because they, they want to take a tough stance on crypto. 
And the reason they want to do that is, I don't know if you guys watched Jon Stewart's video recently where he was talking to Gary Gensler. And he made a joke to Gary. And he's like, dude, you guys have donations for coffee in your office. How can you guys expect to fight billion-dollar hedge funds when you guys have literally coffee donations in your office? Like, you are outgunned. And part of the reason why the SEC wants control or regulatory control over Bitcoin is because Bitcoin is money. Money is influence. It's power. And anytime you have a government agency that can influence and, and regulate power, they become powerful, right? Because they get tax dollars. They get money. They can expand. And the SEC is in desperate need of funding and expansion because otherwise the AMC, the GameStop, the the meme stock movement, that wouldn't have happened because their job is to protect the regular retail investor from unfair capital markets, which they didn't do. And the reason they didn't do it is because they're just not big enough. They're not powerful enough. They don't have enough money. And that's why they want their hands on crypto, because it gives them that reason to expand. But anyway, more more about that in the, in the video tomorrow. Ooh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, it sounds like to me what my conspiracy theory brains tells me is the Wall Street wants in crypto in a major way. They want to set up a ton of ETFs and funds and different things in the crypto space because crypto's gotten big enough now. And so finally, they're getting the politicians on board. That's what my little conspiracy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's not. It's I don't think it's a conspiracy at all. It's um, it's actually one step closer for us to get the spot ETF. Mm. Once we put those regulations in place and clarity, and then we have some protections going, then then the playing field is open. Yeah, I agree, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah, now now we just gotta wait and see. All right, gentlemen, you got anything else? Uh, overtime, I think that's all I had prepped for for slides here tonight. Any, anything on your guys' minds uh, you saw out there this week, or anything like that? It's mm. been uh, it's been interesting. What have you been buying, Jeremy? Uh, let's see. Today I bought PayPal. Um, I bought uh, Honest. So I bought. About ten thousand dollars worth of PayPal. I bought five thousand seven hundred dollars worth of Honest and six thousand three hundred dollars worth of Oatly, which they're going to be reporting earnings soon. Which I'm not expecting much out of the stock price. That's just a, like a long term buy that I'll probably continue to buy for like the next six months. So, um, and I'm still waiting on some of my other small caps to report. Planet still has to report. Tattoo Chef still has to report. Uh, Honest yeah. still has to report. So, yeah. What about you guys? Uh, I'm assuming the normal stuff. Well, Grant, you said something about so you bought some PayPal. Yeah, I, I bought some PayPal uh, when it when it was it today. No, I think it was yesterday. Yesterday during the big sell off, I bought some PayPal, and I think coin, some Coinbase as well. I mean, it's so small compared to everything else, but uh, you know, I'm still buying a little bit here and there, mostly S and P, and then I've been investing just as much also into the international ETF, which has gotten hit very hard. So now mm. I'm officially negative on that fund. I've actually lost money on that fund. Uh, even though I've been buying it now for almost two years, um, oh, wow. so, but buying it cheaper. So which one is it? Which fund? Uh, it's called S. What is it? Uh, Schwab International. It's SC. Uh, why HD? am I blank? No, it's something F. SCHF. Oh. Schwab okay. International Equity ETF. Mm. Okay. Been buying some Schiffer. Yeah, I mean, if you really wanted to play a little dangerous, right? Well, I wouldn't call it dangerous, but if you want to play an index, um, you could look to Europe. Well, I don't know if you guys uh, track the European markets, but some of those markets are down 25, 30 plus percent right now. 
uh, they just gotten absolutely hammered. So uh, much, much harder than we've gotten hit in the States. So, uh, mm. but yeah, what about you, Andre? Any, any interesting buys, NFTs, crypto? What we got? Man? No, I just spent so much money buying the house. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. That's, that's boring, Andre. We want fun stuff. I know, on. right? You're like, what? You're doing adult things? That's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know what stock I wish I could buy if only it was a public company is our sponsor for this video, FTX. 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 Thank you for sponsoring today's video. Make sure you guys check out the link in the description down there and uh, set up an account. FTX is amazing. So a lot, lot coming for FTX. And uh, uh, Graham, you want to take us home? Yeah, so guys, like, like Jeremy mentioned, check out FTX in the description. They do have fees that are up to 85% lower than the competition. And the coolest part about all of it is that you get free crypto with every trade over $10. So, you know, what, what other places do that? So if you want, like, like I mentioned, I got a Dogecoin. It was free. It may as well. It's free. So thank you guys so much for watching. Also, what else is free is subscribing, hitting the like button, commenting down below for the algorithm. And uh, that's it. Thank you guys so much for watching and until next time. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.